The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles, and I've been waiting to say this for a long time. Take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. A little background before we even read the text before us. It was a year ago last week, as Bob said, that the Lord allowed me to become the pastor here at Mission Road Bible Church. For the months leading up to that, uh, we made the decision to kind of do ministry together back earlier in the year. I think it was in April. And for a few months there, I was constantly asked and constantly pounded with the thought of, what are you going to preach first, Rick? What, what's that first series that you want to do? And we started out doing some things that were kind of allowing us to reestablish our our moorings for the first few weeks, but I was pressed pretty hard with, with that decision. What do you begin preaching in your very first senior pastorate? I asked about everybody I knew what they had done and why they had done it, and they all had different answers and different reasons. Uh, but a really important friend of mine just said, preach what's most on your heart. Because when you preach what's most on your heart, they're going to get the very best of what interests you. And it had been many years of just being gravitationally pulled back to the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse, the final conversation between Jesus and his disciples, right only moments and hours before his arrest and the following morning his crucifixion. That has so intrigued me. When I began looking at that more intimately, of what is Jesus doing in this final conversation, which is unique, only John records it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave this section out. Now, John's writing some 30 years after the closing of, of their books. So he's got, he knows that all of the chronological data is out there. He dials in on this special conversation so that he would let us know what Jesus did in teaching his men how to live life with an invisible Savior. What would it be like to live life as a Christian without Jesus on the earth? Which is normal for us, but would not have been for the disciples. His instruction, I think, is, is holy territory, holy ground in Scripture, as precious to me as any other section. Well, after going through John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, those four chapters, now we find our way to 17, which is the culmination. It's the conclusion. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll notice... That except for the first few words of John chapter 17, the rest is all in what color? It's red. Why? Because it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus and it's all Jesus praying. For this morning, we're going to dial into verses 1 and 2. Let's read those just to set them in our minds together. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that all that to all whom you have given to Him, He may give eternal life. John 17 contains the longest prayer we have any record of from the lips of Jesus. 
It's a glimpse into an inner Trinitarian conversation. We are allowed by divine sanction to actually eavesdrop on the Trinity. Jesus speaks this prayer out loud in front of his disciples. It made such an impact that John remembered it with great detail. Perhaps even writing it down in the following days to get every detail exactly as he remembered it. And under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pulls this prayer together for us to see. The 26 verses of John 17 are very special real estate in the Bible. Listen to what some of the great men of God said about this chapter. Matthew Henry said of it, The most remarkable prayer followed the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on the earth. Martin Luther This is truly, beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to to us and to his Father, and Jesus pours them all out. It sounds so, so honest, so simple. It's so deep, so rich, so wide. No one can fathom it. The evening before Luther's death, by the way, he had this prayer read to him three times in succession. Philip Melanchthon, another great reformer, uh, said he gave this lecture only days before his death in which he said of John 17, there's no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God the Father himself. And as he lay dying, he asked for one chapter to be read. And it was John 17. One of my heroes, the eminent Scottish preacher John Knox, had this chapter read to him every day during the final days of his dying. On his deathbed in 1572, he asked his wife one simple request for her to read to him John 17 as the last things he would hear. Scottish preacher John Brown, who is... One of the Covenanters, one of the the clear preaching Puritans in the Scottish Reformation said this. It's a a bit of a lengthy paragraph, but I could not edit it down any smaller than, than just to read it to you. He says, The 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. Now think about that comment. The scripture of truth given by inspiration contains many wonderful passages, but none more wonderful than this, none so wonderful. It is the utterance of the mind and the heart of the God-man in the very crisis of his great undertaking, in the immediate prospect of completing by the sacrifice of himself the work which had been given him to do and for the accomplishment of which he had come to become incarnate. It is the utterance of these to the Father who had sent him. What a concentration of thought and affection is there in these few sentences. How full of grace, how full of truth there is here. How how condensed and yet clear the thoughts. How deep, yet how calm the feelings which are here. So far as the capabilities of the human language can permit, worthily expressed. All is natural and simple in thought and expression. Nothing intricate, nothing elaborate. But there is a width in the conceptions which the human understanding cannot measure. A depth which it cannot fathom. 
There is no bringing out of these plain words all that is seen and felt to be in them. I read you John Brown's comments just to say, as I've been anticipating coming to John 17, I very much feel that. There's a sense in which we could read John 17 and almost be done and say, go meditate on it the rest of your life. We could read John 17 with the four-year-old Sunday school class and they would have a very simple understanding. And there's no part of Scripture that has been given more devotional scholarship than this and not even near plumbing the depths of what's here. J.C. Ryle says, the chapter we have begun here in John 17 is the most remarkable chapter in the Bible. It stands alone and there's nothing like it. Now let me say very clear that every word of God stands as the word of God. There is none inherently more important than the other, but there are some that direct our attention to God with such clarity that they really stand up, make us pause, and make us think. And this is one of those places. When Jesus taught his disciples back in Matthew 6 how to pray, we often call that the Lord's what? The Lord's prayer. We sing the Lord's prayer. However, the way Jesus taught the disciples to pray and the way he prays, very different enterprises. Incomparable enterprises. Really, what we have in Matthew 6 is the disciples' prayer. What we have here is the Lord's prayer. Jesus, think about this, could not pray the prayer of John 6. It was impossible for Jesus to pray what we often call the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins and trespasses? He couldn't pray that. In the same way, none of us, none of us could ever pray John 17. Which one of us can say, restore the glory of that I had and shared with you before the world was. In John 17, the veil is drawn aside, and we are given a ticket and admittance into the Holy of Holies. We are listening to the second person of the Trinity talk to the first person of the Trinity. That's why so many people call this the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus functioning as a priest between us and God and God and us. Now, the prayer breaks down really simply into three sections. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for God's will to be done, for his glory to be reestablished. In verses 6 to 19, he prays for the disciples' sanctification. And we are going to find so many nuances of our pursuit of holiness when we get to that section because we find out exactly what Jesus wants us to pursue, wants us to be, and who we're to become in becoming holy and sanctified. He prays for those things. And then in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for all those who will believe. He actually prays for you and for me. Today we're only going to examine the first two verses of that very first section. And I have to admit, we are going to put the goggles on and jump into the deep end of the pool. Jesus doesn't begin with a lightweight discussion with God. He, he begins talking about the sovereignty of God at the cross and the sovereignty of God in salvation. In these two verses, Jesus affirms two fundamentals of God's sovereignty in the shadow of his final hours. If you want to follow an outline, we'll use that as our heading. Jesus affirms two fundamentals of God's sovereignty in the shadow of his final hours. 
It makes sense that he would reach back for God's sovereignty as his pillar for prayer, as his pillar for instruction. If God the Father was not in charge of what was happening, if God the Father had not had a predetermined plan to save the elect, Jesus would have been utterly discouraged. And he deals with those two issues in these first two verses. So the first fundamental is in verse 1. God is sovereign over his suffering atonement. God is sovereign over Jesus or his suffering atonement. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father. First, notice that Jesus addresses God as Father. Scan down the page for a moment, minute to, to verse 11. He does the same. Then in verse 25, he does the same. There's actually six and even a hidden seventh reference to God as Father. One time by reference, he causes, calls him Father. We'll look at those as we go through this text. There's a reverence here that's noteworthy. Jesus, the Son of God, approaches God the Father. Now, this would have been very uh, interesting, not only for Jesus to have done, but he also taught the disciples to, to begin their prayers by saying what? Our Father, chart in heaven. Remember, the Jewish community was so sensitive and so superstitious in their approach to God, they wouldn't even say his name. And yet Jesus says, no. He's your father. And here in his moment of crisis, he addresses him as father. This is amazing that we address God as father. Jesus addresses God as father. It really affirms Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, that says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us what? Brothers. Doesn't that make sense? If we have... <laughs> Almost, it almost feels awkward to even say, if we have a sibling relationship with the Son of God who worships the Father and invites us to address God as Father, what does that tell us about our relationship with the Son and our access to the Father? It was the natural way Jesus prayed, Father. Then he says, the hour has come. If you're an underliner or a highlighter or a starer or an asterisk or whatever you do in your Bible, this is one of those places to mark. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We're told repeatedly throughout the gospel of John that the hour has not come. John 2, 4, Jesus said to his mom at the, the wedding at Cana where he turned the water into wine, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. John 7, 6, Jesus said to them, my time is not here yet. John 7, 8, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. John 7, 30, so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Over and over, his hour has not come, yet something dramatic changes as he comes to the Passover week. Turn back over to John 12. Verse 20. Remember, Jesus has come to Bethsaida. He's getting ready to go up into Jerusalem. Crowds are thronging to be with him. John 12, 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, 
of Galilee and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, What? The hour has come. It's the first time Jesus had said that. After hearing the hour has not come over and over to themselves and amongst themselves and to the crowds, now he finally says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, which is exactly what he asks God to do in John 17.1. It goes on, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. How in the world can Jesus say that the glory of God is manifest in death? Because his death would atone for sin, the sins of those who would believe. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it, to, keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. That is just so remarkable. This is God in flesh who says this. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now we find that the hour that is to come has to do with his death. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Make your greatness known. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. There is it gap in that verse. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again, but there will be a time when the world will look and see no glory, when God in flesh is nailed to wood. So the crowd of people stood by, heard it, and were saying, it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel spoken. What was going on here? God was saying, the hour's come, Jesus was affirming his time had come, the hour was here, and it had everything to do with his dying on the cross. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 and 2 says, there's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven. And this was certainly in that time. Chapter 13, verse 1 We spent some considerable time looking at this now at the feast of the Passover. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. What hour? That he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. As Jesus lifts his eyes to look to heaven to pray, he knows where Judas is. He knows what Judas is doing. He knows there are soldiers coming. And yet... He's undeterred in his moment of prayer for and with his disciples. We could look a lot here at John 17, 1. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, I mean, there's a posture there that's instructive, but not didactic. In other words, there's no command here to do this. But I love the fact that we often think of prayer closing our eyes and bowing our heads, and that's certainly a form of prayer and a posture that will keep us from distractions But here Jesus opens his eyes and looks to heaven. There's a great insight there that prayer can be done in any posture and in any time because God's omniscient, omnipresent, always with an ear tuned to his children. 
This timing, though, is a strange timing in the eyes of the world. Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's important for us to realize what John is recording of Jesus saying. Because for that first generation, people were going to constantly say, if he was the Messiah, why is he not on the throne as king? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Greeks were saying, that's foolish. The Jews were saying, that's foolish. Who would have a crucified Messiah in their save the world scheme? Only God would. The hour has come. Then he goes back to, remember all the glory we saw in chapters 12 and 13? The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Literally, build into bright as the sun light. Shine a light on through with by me. Why? So that I can have lots of praise? No. So that the Son may glorify you. Even Jesus' call for his own glorification looks back to God the Father. What's Jesus asking here? He's asking that through the horror of the cross, through the humiliation of the cross, through the hideous trauma of the cross, through the physical sufferings of the cross, through the Father's rejection of the Son at the cross, that the Father would reverse the self-emptying that happened in the incarnation. You say, what is that? Remember in Philippians 2, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He came in humility, and he did it like no one else ever has or could. And now Jesus has said, I've fulfilled my mission. I'm about to die in ultimate humiliation Let's reverse that. The humiliation of his incarnation will now, has now, forever been reversed so that he stands in glory as the Lamb on the throne and there is no humiliation in heaven right now. The cross is inseparable from Jesus' ascension and glorification. It was no surprise to Jesus. He embraced God's sovereignty. He embraced his will in his march to Calvary. This was not an accident. We've looked at over and over in John 13 to 16 how he told them very specifically, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be tried by the scribes and Pharisees. They're going to beat me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to kill me. And I want you to know that I'm saying this now so that when it happens, you won't have any, any doubts that I am in control. In verse 2, now Jesus shifts gears. He affirms a second fundamental of God's sovereignty. Not only is God sovereign over the horror of the cross and will bring salvation from it, God is in control of that. Now we find out that God is sovereign, number two, over our predestined salvation. God is sovereign over our predestined salvation. Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. First of all, notice that Jesus is praying in the third person. He'll change that in a few verses. He's praying in third person. As we'll see uh, in our next study, it's in, in verse 3, it's the only time in the New Testament Jesus refers to himself by name in the third person. 
Look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Can you imagine me praying? I just want to pray for our church day and Rick Holland who's preaching. That would be awkward. Yet it's not for the Son of God. He's praying in third person. You gave him, being Jesus, authority over all flesh. You cannot read this passage without remembering the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go accomplish my mission of saving and sanctifying people. Now we come to a little phrase that has caused many people no small amount of theological heartburn. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Notice that this prayer has so far been in third person, which is because um, Jesus is saying it simply so that John would record it, I'm sure, also for the benefit of his friends. Now we find out something indescribably special about Jesus' relationship with these believers. They are a... It's almost, it's almost awkward to even say. They are, we are, believers are a gift from the Father to the Son. Now, if you want to talk about issues of self-esteem, you need to stop nowhere further than this verse. That if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... If you believe the gospel and have bowed your knee to his greatness and the sacrifice of his son on the cross, if you've done that, your soul is a gift from the Father to the Son. Mind-numbing. Now, this verse brings up the question of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Jesus clearly says that believers are a gift from the Father to the Son. It's a definite gift. How does this work? Well, I have been asked probably, I don't know, more times than I can count since I get here, Rick, are you a Calvinist? It's a tricky question because it depends on your definition of a Calvinist. Because there are those who claim to hold Calvinistic um, theology that I would not want to associate my theology with in the slightest. So when anyone asks me that, are you a Calvinist? I want to say, well, first, first tell me what you mean by Calvinist. And that often defines whether I would say yes or no that. Let me tell you what, what I am. I, I am I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Calvinist with a lot of questions and tensions. In this, I do believe that God saves people who could not save themselves and would not save themselves. He turns on the light switch from the dead to life. There is no way a dead man can make a decision spiritually before the Lord. He does something divinely to turn on the mind and imagination to receive the things of God. There's no way to deny what's being said here. All to whom you have given to the Son. All to whom you have given. There's a group of people that God the Father has given to the Son. How does this work? 
Well, like I said, I have a lot of questions and tensions. Now, we looked at this back before Christmas, but I want to take a quick tour again at Jesus' own words about the sovereignty of God in salvation and man's responsibility in salvation and make you thoroughly, wonderfully in tension with me. Can I? Go back to John chapter 6. This is my favorite chapter for looking at the sovereignty of God and salvation because it just bounces back and forth seamlessly with no footnotes. Jesus is preaching to a large crowd. In verse 29, he says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe. Belief is a work of God. No man stands neutral in picking God or his own way, or picking God or Satan, or picking heaven or hell. It's the work of God to believe. Someone has said, well, you're not saved by works. You're exactly right. The Bible's very clear on that. So much so that believing is a work. You wouldn't believe unless God turned the light on in your mind. It says so very clearly in John 6, 29. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He doesn't say there, see if you know the precious, secret, elect handshake. He says, believe. That's the command, believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, here we find it again, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Verse 37 might be the, the most compressed place where the sovereignty of God and salvation and the responsibility of man come together. The Father gives specific ones, but all who come, Jesus won't turn aside. Only those who he's called will come. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For, verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Responsibility to believe. God's responsibility to do the work of believing. All right next to each other. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Just let that sink in for a moment. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 51, I'm the living bread, came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He didn't say, find out if you're elect. He said, believe. Verse 63, if the spirit who gives life it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives that life. Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was also saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. Now, if you're like me, you read all that and you go, wait a minute, he's saying... God the Father elects. God the Father draws. Only God the Father can cause belief. This is all of God, all of God, all of God. And yet, if anyone will believe, you can be saved. And you're going, wait, 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 which, which is it? Which is why we have verse, verse 66. 
As a result of this, what he's been teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Do you think this debate over the sovereignty of God and salvation is new? You think people have struggled with it just like in our generation? They struggled with it when Jesus taught it. However, let me say with a great degree of love and a smile on my face that I have never met a true Arminian. You say, what is that? That's someone who follows the teachings of Arminius who basically fought uh, uh, um, against the sovereignty of God and salvation. Calvin's response to that and his five points. I've never met someone who really believes, really honestly believes that man has a choice independent of God. You say, how can you prove that? Have you ever met anyone who has not prayed for the salvation of another? Have you ever met any Christian who has not prayed for someone's salvation? I hope you would say no. What is that? God saved them? I mean, if we really believe that God wasn't at work, I think intuitively we know only God can do that. That's why we pray that. We don't say, God, we're not going to pray for anyone's salvation today, but instead I'm going to go get my best arguments together and leave you out of the equation. No one does that. If you have prayed for God to save someone, stop and ask yourself what you're actually asking God to do. You're asking God to overwhelm the will of someone on the earth and give them what he deserves, which is belief and glory. That is God drawing someone to faith. You say, what about all these verses that say believe? That's, let me quote Spurgeon. I want to preach like an Arminian and believe like a Calvinist. I like that. God has chosen some. I don't know who it is. So my job is to be faithful in the proclamation of calling people to believe that's why we find in 1 Corinthians 6, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where sometimes the gospel actually seals a person's eternal doom. Paul says, For some I preached and it was death to death, for others life to life. In other words, the gospel confirmed disbelief in someone, in some people, because they heard it and rejected it. Look back in John 17 now. Because this is a really important concept at the end of verse 2. So that all whom you have given him, he, that is Jesus, may give eternal life. The words eternal life occur 17 times in John's gospel. Exactly what is this life? Well, we're going to look at that next week. But if you want to know exactly what eternal life is, all you have to do is read John 17, 3, and he answers exactly what eternal life is. It's far more than life that lasts forever. It's the enjoyment of a relationship with the Godhead. So here's the question we have to ask, because Jesus brought a subject up, so let's ask it and answer it. Wait, Rick, hang on, time out. I'm uncomfortable with this. I've never met anyone who's not, who is completely comfortable with the idea that God is completely in control of our salvation and our belief. It's a difficult pill to swallow. And if you're like many, if you're like me, you would say, wait, time out, hold on, Rick. How can I know if I'm elect? Right? Good question. How can I know if I'm elect? 
Here's the drum roll. Here's the big answer. Are you ready? Do you and will you believe? Will you believe? We're not called to find out who's elect. We're called to call people to believe. Tell people to believe. and We have to believe this. We have to believe this. And you were dead in your trespasses and, trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, I mean, how much can a dead spiritual person really respond to God? I don't want to be irreverent. I have been to performed countless funerals. I have never in the history of my life whether family or friend or church member or unbeliever, had anyone go up, bring me over to the casket, knock on the casket, open it up and say, let's go play football. I'm not being irreverent. It's just impossible. As impossible as that is, is the possibility that someone would sit and think, hmm, God or me, Satan or God, heaven or hell, I'm going to do a scientific empirical study and then I'll decide based on the benefits. You know how I can prove that? Because if that were true, every man would be converted. Every man would be converted. We are lost. We're going to look specifically into what that means a little bit more next week. A few uh, months ago, we, we talked about that illustration of the goalie and keeping people out or laying people in. We're going to do that next week, so just hold on to that. Just for, for today, just know this. Jesus, in his intercession for us with, with the Father. He can't even start. His, to go to the doctrine of God's salvation being under his sovereignty, he can't even talk about that without talking about God's sovereignty over our salvation. Now, before there's a line after the service, let me tell you, I've read John 3.16. I know John 3, 6. I know 1 Peter 3. He's not willing that any should perish, but it all will come to repentance. I've, I know that, and we'll get to those, but we have to deal with this one while we're here. Bottom line is, doesn't undermine any of that. God chooses, and you should thank Him, thank God Almighty every moment of your life that He does choose, because if He didn't, we would have never chosen Him. Do you believe? Will you believe? Can you believe? Please, please run. Don't walk. Run to the cross. Don't wait to see if you're elect. Run to the cross because you believe that a man, a man, a mediator between God and man, Jesus, died in our place under the full and furious and rightful wrath of God instead of us to offer us his righteousness to stand before God, perfect and blameless, covered in the righteous person of Jesus Christ. You say, how do I know? Because he rose from the dead. That proves everything. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts and see that that was, the, that was their ace of spades that the early church used to prove everything they wanted to about Jesus. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. We just, lose, we just lose the wonder of that. We've sung about it, spoke about it so often in the church, we, we forget how 
audacious that is. Can you imagine someone to say, my uncle died, but by the way, he's alive again. We say, you're, you're a fool, which is exactly what 1 Corinthians said, they said about the first generation of Christians. You're, you believe a man rose from the dead? Not possible. I often thought after the resurrection, the smile that must have been on the face of Lazarus as he walked around and said, told you so. I told you so. Well, we're going to sing a couple of songs just to cement these truths into our heart. Afterwards, Richard Oaks is going to be over here at prayer room. If you want to talk about things that matter and things related to your soul, I'll be up here. We'd love to talk to you and introduce you to the Savior who died for sin. Father, what an amazing privilege to have been called and drawn and chosen as gifts to your son. I, I count my own life as so unspeakably unworthy of being counted in that crowd. Please, please extract from the believers in this room thankfulness and unworthiness and worship. And I'm very aware that with a crowd this size, there are no doubt folks who have not bowed the knee to Christ. Lord, show them the wonder, the blessed, amazing gift of having sin forgiven and heaven secured and a relationship with you in this life and the one to come. Show them those benefits and blessings. Woo them to your side by the cross. Give them the work of belief that you'll do in their heart. Many questions still linger in our hearts from this text, Lord. I know and see it on the faces of many folks. Help us to confess with Augustine that we will believe in order to understand and not try to understand so that we can believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.